We are live. Good, good morning. I was going to say good morning. I was so used to saying good morning. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this special edition of Cup of Tea with Rick G. So it's been a while since I've interviewed anybody um, in the evening. We are live tonight, and I'm really, really pleased that we have got the one and only Julie Ford on board with us tonight. Good evening, Julie. I keep on saying good morning. It's not morning, folks. It is literally, oh, I'm actually a bit early. It's half past seven. We are live. Hi, Julie. Good evening, Rick. Yeah, I know we're so used to seeing you first thing in the morning. It's just autopilot for you now, isn't it? Good morning, everybody. <laughs> oh, yeah, I said good morning. We are live, folks. So, yeah. So, folks, you know what we do here? We have to say hi. That's what we do. So, whoever's watching, we've got to say hi. Give yourselves a shout out. So, tonight, we are going to talk all about property compliance, what's happening in the rental sector right now, and all of the elements that the government keep throwing at us. Um, in terms of possessions, possession hearings, and everything in between. So, Julie, I don't want to take away your thunder. Can you just explain to everybody that's listening and watching a little bit about your background and how you ended up doing what you do? Well, good evening, everybody, and thank you for tuning in and watching us here live this evening. Um, my background is a, probably a little bit like everybody else's. When I first started, I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, and I think I had about 30 or 40 different jobs before I accidentally fell into property. Um, I got married. I married a squaddy, so moved around with the army quite a lot and eventually found myself in North London. And one of my first jobs actually was as a new build sales coordinator, which sounds a very grand title, but really I was just selling refurbished blocks in a, um, a grade two listed building. Um, but the issues that we had there were quite interesting because you'd have all these people with their new builds coming in with their problems, the snagging list, obviously, and none of the salespeople were interested in dealing with that. However, I am a natural fixer. And as soon as someone's got a problem, I've got to sort it out. So I then donned my wellies and spent most of my time on the site with architects and plumbers and electricians sorting out all the problems. And um, that's kind of where I fell into to liking property, really, but still realising that I needed to fix people's problems. Um, I stayed there for a good couple of years working with the developer. And then when those phases finished, um, I was kind of a bit lost again, didn't know what I wanted to do. And that's when I got a job in the city working for a large asset and property management company. I worked my way up with them and become a head of the department worked with them for a good few years um, and then took a complete change of direction and moved into third sector working with the citizens advice and homeless charities Ooh, and citizens advice oh i know don't hate me don't hate we'll me talk about that in a <laughs> So I was working for Citizens Advice as a housing and homeless law specialist. And that's really when I started to see the whole different side of renting. So I've been used to dealing with high end properties and high end landlords. I mean, Ricky Gervais was one of my landlords that I looked after. I had high profile footballers on my my um, portfolio. But then from the citizens advice, I'm seeing a completely different side of things and I'm seeing what tenants are coming in with the problems and realizing that actually I don't truly believe a landlord wakes up in the morning and says, I think what happens is they just don't understand the system and they just make mistakes. And that's what I found in the citizens advice. And that's one of the reasons why I started the network that I obviously now run as well. Which is a really big network. So let's talk a little bit about 
the citizens advice stuff okay because i think very often when you've got people that are there to help tenants sometimes people who are landlords can see that actually that they're against them and they're you know they're the enemy type of thing so were you ever seen as the enemy type of person working for the cab um because i can imagine it was a very stressful job for you and not something that a lot of people would aspire to do i would imagine it's quite a hard tough job it is if you allow it to be i think it's with any job where you're dealing with people that are coming to you in crisis no one comes to the citizens advice when they've won a lottery ticket and they want you to tell them what to do with it they come to you at the most critical points in their life they are stressed they are upset they're angry so you're dealing with all of that whilst you're still trying to get to the problem and what I've always found when I was working at Citizens Advice is as long as you've got the time to listen so that they can vent it's much easier to solve their problems and when I ring a landlord and say I'm calling from the Citizens Advice apart from the fact nine times out of ten the end of the phone just goes quiet and you think oh that's it I'm not going to win here it's how you approach it. You can go into that phone call going, I'm from Citizens Advice, I'm on the tenant side, and you're not going to win that argument. But if you go into it going, right, there's three sides to every story, there's the tenants, there's the truth, and there's the landlords, you're going to get a little bit further. The only time I found at Citizens Advice I was ever coming up against um, problems or controversy was when I was actually working directly with councils, um, and I was ever having to challenge councils' work within the private rented sector. But otherwise, I found working with landlords and letting agents, funnily enough, we're all very open to how long ago was it um i started with them in 2013 and i was there for six years six years so going back then to that point in your career i imagine you were probably dealing with quite a lot of rogue type landlords yeah i don't think i was to be honest with you every time i picked up the phone and spoke to a landlord or a letting agent for that matter what i was finding was these landlords just didn't know it wasn't a want to not do something it was just a not knowing that they had to do it and mm. once i've informed them why they had to do it and what they had to do what i was finding was those landlords wanted to rectify the problem rather than fight against the fact that they'd been found out that they hadn't done something correct and they wanted to learn to do it right next time and was it at this point then you started to get an appetite for legislation because um, I love legislation and I, you know, I am a proper legislation geek, but I put that down to my police background because I had to do it, had to study for my exams, had to study for my sergeant's exams. And it all just, you know, I, I love consuming information. Yeah. What point did you think, you know what, I, I like geeking out on all of this legislation? Um, I think I've always been like that. I mean, I was like that at school and I, I went to uni. I did law at uni. And I think that's really where it all started for me, because you could just see how everything just comes together when you've got the law, because the law just tells you how to do it. How can anyone get it wrong? You know, well, um, you'd like to think, though, wouldn't you? Because there's a lot of grey. You know, when somebody releases a new white paper or something similar, there's so many unanswered questions in it. Yeah, I agree with you there. And a lot of the time people don't want to spend the time with their highlighter pen and their cup of tea going through it all, actually finding out what it, yeah, so do I, what it actually means to them. But that's, I get a real buzz out of doing that. I mean, yeah, when the I coronavirus came out, sorry. when the coronavirus came out, so when the coronavirus act came out i was literally there at midnight printed it off and i was like right i'm getting through this 358 pages and i did 
Yeah, I was the same. I was the same. I think um, what we had recently when the Right to Rent Act came out, the Deregulation Act, well, that's um, so long ago now, um, the Tenant Fee Ban. Yeah, I mean, God, was it? And then, of course, um, more recently, you know, the repeal or the pending repeal of Section 21, which will be the next thing, which we can talk about in a second. So all of the legislation stuff really does put you um, head and shoulders. I mean, say you, I mean, collectively, when people do study legislation, because knowledge is power. And very often um, I can be at a property. I mean, I don't go to my properties very often these days, but if I'm there to meet a HMO officer, you know, it's just shocking the level of knowledge that even somebody in that position doesn't have. I remember once, right, uh, I was at a property and it was a new license for the new um, the new mandatory licensing. You know, so they took away the floors. So I think they had about four properties then that needed license, not many. And I was at this property and the HMO officer came in and he walked into one of the rooms, which was en suite. And he said, this is no good. You can't pass this. I said, well, why? What's what, what's the issue? He said, well, the, the sink isn't big enough. You need to be able to bend over and shave. I said, there's a young lady lives in this this room. You know, she's not going to want to bend over and shave. He said, all right, then fair enough. And then, you know, you've got, to, you've, you've got to challenge these people sometimes. Otherwise, you just won't win. All right, so let's talk about your networking meeting. Now, I know that you run a really big networking meeting. So let's talk about how did that start? Then we'll go through, you know, what it does and how it can help other people that are watching and listening tonight. Okay, yeah. So my networking event is now in its ninth successful year. And to have an event running for that long that's independent outside of any of the, the larger networks like PIN, for etc., is um, quite, quite different because not many people have got the maybe the longevity to, to do it. But I started it really because working within letting agents, I was seeing that even the letting agents, like you said about your um, guys from the council, don't always know as much as they should know. And at that particular time, there was a lot of networking meetings that were starting that were purely about getting property and growing your wealth and growing your portfolio. But as soon as somebody had that property, there was nobody to tell them how to be a good landlord. And I think that's a real break in the education system between property education that we know and the fact of what it's actually like to be a landlord on the ground. So I started my network purely to take off literally where the um, other property networking groups were leaving people hanging with sort of like the keys in their hand and a tenant going, now what do I do? So mine was based mm -hmm. more on education, information, legislation and peer-to-peer -peer knowledge. If it wasn't for my founding members, I probably couldn't make the network work as well as it does. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there because lots of networking meetings are a funnel. That's what they are. They're funneled into somebody's course. Then they go on the course and nobody, I mean, I like to think that, you know, our training company, you know, I say we've got 350 um, students at the moment in our training company. But we pride ourselves on telling people actually what they need to know rather than what they just want to know. So it's not about making millions of pounds in a day or, you know, going out there and, and getting property just to say you've got property. We like to make sure that people actually get all of the stuff like the CDM regs and, you know, all of the, the stuff in the background that people don't talk about, asbestos regulations and all of the boring stuff, Lacour's fire safety. You know, we teach that, but nobody else seems to do it. So it's nice that you're in that arena as well. So what, I mean, what, what, how did you start this? Because I know how hard it is putting people in rooms. 
And to get to where you've got and to do it for such a long period of time takes an awful lot of work. So how did you start? Where did it start? Was it just you and a few people having a brew? It wasn't even as eloquent as that, to be honest with you. I, I started the whole thing all guns blazing. Um, I Before my first meeting, I had a website set up. I'd had the whole, the whole kit and caboodle had a speaker, the whole thing, and um, started it in the Holiday Inn in Hemel Hempstead. I had the big meeting room. That's it. I was going big. Two people turned up. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Oopsie. At that point, though, Julie, do you think at that point, you know, because I know how hard it is to fill rooms. I really do. It's not easy at all. And um, I've started networking meetings before and not done them very well and given up because only two or three people turned up. At that point, did you think, what, what's the point? No, at that point, I thought, what did I do wrong? Right. And um, what have I got to do now to get? I wanted it so badly. I wanted to make this work so badly that I was going to stick at it regardless, no matter what. Um, so I started running the events for free. I started trying to get anybody involved that I could possibly get involved. And for a long while, it was literally just five or six people in a room that just kept coming. And I think they were only coming because I was providing wine. <laughs> and um <laughs> It's it's of it's grown since then. Um, I continue to have speakers, but they're more quarterly than they are on a regular basis. And now I'm in a position where I've got nearly um, a thousand um, people that are connected with the group across Hemel Hempstead, um, St Albans, and surrounding uh, surrounding villages, and and a base of 400 members. Now, for a small group like mine, that's that's quite an accomplishment. And now I can fill a room and we've just had to move from just before lockdown, we had to move from the venue that we did have it in because we outgrew it and we in our new venue and then we had lockdown. So unfortunately I haven't been able to go back, but it's growing from strength to strength. And I'm now actually um, in talks with the um, National Residential Landlord Association about having them come on board with me to see if there's some way of working together to give more to landlords. So that instead of having to keep being accredited in different areas, in different towns for different schemes, to see if there's some way that we can do it together. So that if a landlord wants to be um, accredited, they can do it through me as well as that gives them accreditation to um, NRLA as well. So I know there are loads of people now in this arena. There are loads of networking meetings, which is a good thing. Um, what do you think is the most important thing about networking for your crowd rather than the speakers, et cetera? What, how, how and why is networking important, Julie? Network is important because, first of all, property is probably one of the loneliest businesses you can ever be in. And I think it's really important that you know that there's other people out there that are also going through what you're going through or have been through what you're, you're, you're going through. The support and the advice and knowledge from peers just going through it, I think, is is invaluable compared to anything else that a networking event can bring to you. And it's also what people need, I think, from a networking group is very different. I have people that solely come along because they want to do business. I have people that come along, they haven't even got into property yet, and they just want to see if it's for them. So there's such a varying degree of, of attendees that you have to make sure that it encompasses all of them without dumbing down the information for those that have been in the industry for years, but also making sure you're feeding them enough information that they feel value when they're coming to the meeting. So how can, if people are interested in coming along to your network meeting, I know that at the moment we're not doing classroom stuff. Um, are you online? If you are, how can people contact you? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we have been running all of the network meetings online through Zoom. Um, they are obviously on my um, Hemel Network Facebook page. So there it's is Hemel, a, a banner on the on the bottom here. So Hemel, spell it. Can you spell it for me? Yeah, it's H E M E L. Yeah. Landlord Property Network. Right. And have you got a phone number, or you're not prepared to check that out there tonight? No. Yeah, what's the website? So it's www. Yeah. Hotel Sierra Papa November UK. Good job, I know what you're talking about there, isn't it? <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be looking a little bit silly right there. Right, so there we go. Hemel Network, uh, Landlord Network, Hemel Landlord Network, www.hspn.uk. Awesome. Thank you. I'm going to leave that up so people can check that out and they can come along and see you. So let's talk about all this rubbish that's going on in the property world right now. There is so much going on. Why are we always getting attacked? Why? Because landlords, for a start, are an easy target because um, it's such controversy that, that sits around the private rented sector. It's not regulated. That's one of the main issues with the private rented sector. Not regulated. The HMO sector is more regulated than anything they've ever seen. But as a landlord, you're not regulated, are you? As a letting agent, you don't have to be regulated. There's regulations out there, but as individuals, they are not regulated. And that's what I think is the issue and why the government, instead of literally doing a blanket new set of regulations to cover the private rented sector, keep bringing in these Band-Aid pieces of legislation like the Deregulation Act was literally to stick a load of plasters on the Housing Act and, and everything else that wasn't working correctly. The same with but all really, these smaller you know, I mean, we provide, the government cannot provide their shortfall of their housing of 300,000. They've never been able to do it. Now, there are 2 million private landlords in the UK. Now, that is a snip compared to the population. But we are always getting berated on how we gobble up the housing stock, how we're fat cats, how we should give tenants our properties for free and let them live there for nothing. When is it going to stop? I don't think it is going to stop. I mean, it's like I say, because it's such an easy target with the fact that there isn't the, the regulation of the individuals and the businesses and there is no clear set guidance in regards to what laws we need to follow. And Scotland did a really good thing um, a few years back when they basically stripped all of their housing law back took away assured shorthold tenancies. You can only have one type of tenancy now. That's it. That's it. Everyone knows where they're going. Here, unfortunately, if Jeremy Corbyn would have got in, then we would have had something very similar. I'm not going to turn yeah. this into politics because otherwise people will shoot me down. But, you know, sometimes I get a little bit frustrated with it because we like to keep a nice, happy, smiley face. And every morning when I'm reporting on the news feed, there's always somebody, isn't there? Always somebody that says, oh, let your tenants stay for free and, you know, let your tenants do this. And But, you know, I mean, you know yourself – I mean, I've got, I've got, a, well, anything between 100 and 150 tenants at any one time and everything in between. Currently, we've got about 120 tenants. Now, um, we don't make, you know, we don't make as much money as the press would make out that we do because we have got so many overheads. It is unbelievable. Our rent roll is good. Rent roll is about 50 grand a month. She's great. That's not profit. 
So when are the government going to realize that actually we are helping them plug most of the gaps? They brought the right to rent in because they couldn't do it or they couldn't have the manpower to go out and do it. You know, the deregulation out of the brought in because they can't regulate it. And now they've, you know, just started to target all of us again, as far as I can see regarding the section 21 repeal and everything else that we've been you know up against the new licensing act that came in in october 2019 for hmos i just i don't know how much more they can start to regulate that's my rant sorry you don't have to answer any of that my next question for you is um what do you think the markets are going to look like when we come out of all this corona nonsense um, from the rental side, I think it's the only thing that's going to really be moving forward because people aren't going to be in a position to purchase as easily as they would have done, um, especially first time buyers. I know there's been, you know, some schemes available to first time buyers. And obviously we've seen that the stamp duty issue um, taken away for a short period of time. But from people's financial point of view, if they're on furlough, if they're looking at redundancy, if they've been on universal credit, that's a glitch on their credit rating now as, as people going into um, getting mortgages and stuff like that. And I think really we're going to have to have more and more properties in the private rented sector to be able to accommodate these people. I mean, I know for a fact that there's been a huge amount of people that have realised that they don't love their partners anymore through lockdown. <laughs> and there's been a huge split in um, well, relationships. Perhaps they never really did and they've just had it confirmed. <laughs> So obviously now there's a, a higher percentage of people looking for rooms or one bedroom properties, which actually as a as a country, we don't have available. We don't have that many one beds. We don't have, you know, the availability for people to move into one beds, which is why HMOs are so popular. And I mm. think also it gives you the opportunity to build yourself back up because what you're paying for in an HMO room is so much cheaper than what you'd be in a one bedroom. Yes, you lose your independence a little bit because you're sharing, but I think it brings so much more to people than being isolated in a one bedroom flat. Because if you live by yourself, for example, through COVID, at least if you were in a HMO, you've got other people that you could have still been talking to and interacting with. Whereas in a one bedroom flat, you're, you, that's it. It's just you. And, and I think with people's mental health as well, that's something to consider moving forward. How HMOs, I think, could be much more helpful to people and not just the housing market. I totally agree with all of that. And I think HMOs are going to be very strong. I think HMOs, um, for everything that you've just said, people will need a more transient lifestyle as well moving forwards if they're going to have to travel for their jobs. And at the end of the day, no matter what happens to um, the, the employment in the country, people will always need somewhere to live. And that's never going to go away. I think landlords may have to change their demographic. They may have to go more down the LHA route than perhaps they would before. Um, but people will always need somewhere to live. I also think that these staycations are um, certainly at the moment, especially because Boris now has just announced again that, um, you know, we can't really go well than Spain and, and what have you. So I think more people are going to be incentivized to stay within uh, the UK to go on holiday. And I think the staycations and the holiday lets are going to be really strong moving forwards. Let's talk about this thing called Section 21, Julie. Let's talk about this nonsense that it must be two years ago now when they announced it. If it's not, it must be close to it. And we're still nowhere near. So I'll put it over to you. What are your thoughts on it? And what do you think is going to happen when it when it eventually materialises, if it does, which I think it will? 
Yeah, I think it's it's definitely going to happen. Um, we know that the renters reform bill is currently sitting in Parliament, but we also know that it's not going to get a second reading until next year at, at the earliest. The issues that we have is Section 21 is too easy at the moment to use. Landlords will use it to get tenants out that are maybe having antisocial behaviour or rent arrears because it's such an easy process. You're guaranteed that eviction as long as you've got all your paperwork right. Whereas if you want to use a Section 8 and the actual real reasons for evicting that tenant, the the hoops that you have to jump through and the paperwork that you have to get right. And then only eight of those grounds are actually guaranteed to give you an eviction when you go to court. And you've got the tenants got an opportunity to defend and they've got an opportunity to have those um, evictions set aside. And I think for landlords who just literally want the tenant out, done and dusted, move on, next tenant please. The section 20 is an easy fix for that. And it's it does exactly what it says on the tin. It's a no fault notice. So it's great if you want your property back. But I think moving forward, if we get rid of Section 21 from the Housing Act, so landlords can no longer have that process, we need to really exaggerate more the clauses within the Section 8. And we need to have more mandatory clauses. Um, at the moment, they're adding sub clauses. So we've got 17A and, and 14A for antisocial behaviour and domestic violence. But I think we need more than that. We need much more no fault notice. There needs to be a no fault notice in the Section 8 unless people start using ground one. But then you've got to get landlords to serve notices before tenants physically move into the property. How many is going to get that admin right? Mm. So. I just hey, think you remember we when we used to do that with Section 21? <laughs> that was yeah. a long time ago. I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone yeah. Here's, your, here's your Section 21 and here's your tenancy agreement. <laughs> yeah. I just moved in and you're kicking me out already. Um, that brings us on. I mean, I don't remember the last time I actually issued a Section 21, if I'm honest. Um, but that brings me on nicely too. There are so many people at the moment. Now, my big landlord group, you know, the HMO property group, 17,500 active members in that group. And you probably saw the thread yesterday. Um, and it causes loads of emotion. And it kind of splits people where people have got really bad tenants at the moment and they can't evict them because unlike, you know, other places that are pragmatic like Wales, um, that there is no element of, well, you can only do it if it's domestic violence or if it's an offence against the person, or it's ASB. We've got nothing. So when Rishi stood up at that lectern and said that tenants now will have to be served three months' notice um, before we can kick them out, no consideration whatsoever for emergency cases, nothing. And there's not likely to be now. It's too late for that. So people are screaming and saying, well, I'm going to take the law into my own hands. What would your advice be, Julie, to those people that are going through this element at the moment? And there are loads. Well, obviously, my advice is going to be you have to follow the law. You have to be serving the correct notices. But also understand that in this particular time, this pandemic, none of us have been through this pandemic before. So as much as landlords that we're worried, the tenants are worried also. It's a crisis for both sides. And I think communication really is the key. It may be the first time you've ever spoken to your tenant because, you know, a letting agent moved them in and you've never had to speak to them before. But it's about opening up that dialogue. And like I said before, when I was working for Citizens Advice, it's about how you enter that conversation. I think landlords in this case, sort of need to be the grown-up really in in this relationship and go in and go right we we have a problem I need to know how you are how this is affecting you what can I do to help okay you can't pay your rent would you like to move out I can help you do that 
and have ways of doing it. We've got deeds of surrender. We can, you know, pay tenants to move into a, a, a downsizing property, a cheaper property. We can help a lot more in that respect than having to just sit on the back of a, a Section 21 waiting until we're going to get evictions next year. That's what we're looking at. If we've served notice now, by the time the courts get themselves into action, we're going to be looking at next year. But taking the law into your own hands and going at it all guns blazing, I understand because landlords are frustrated, they're angry, they just want that tenant out. But I think if it's going to work, then, you know, the, the word mediation springs to mind. But it, it is about communication. And there are mediation services out there as, as well. I mean, I know one of the tenancy deposit schemes has just started a mediation service for landlords. Um, the property redress scheme launched a mediation service for landlords. And you don't have to be members of those organisations to, uh, to have that service. And I think, you know, paying um, 100 quid or whatever to one of these mediation services to have an, an independent person come in and help just diffuse that situation and, and get a good outcome for both parties is probably a better option for everybody than getting into a fight which is passionate and personal and you know yeah. people end up getting the locks changed and, and putting the tenants on the street which is no good for anybody it's not and I know that you know what it's like let me give an example. I don't know. It's like doing 50 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone. You might get caught. You might not. You might get away with it. But if you do get caught, then it's going to have consequences. Now, I try my very best because I'm all about compliance. I've got a property management system that guides through compliance. It guides through the regulation act, deregulation act. So people can only be compliant. And I'm the same in my property group. And I think with the elements of my property group yesterday, people were saying, throw them out, knock the doors down, you know, lock them out, get the heavies in, get the baseball bats. Now, I know a lot of it was tongue in cheek, but going back probably about seven or eight years, I was having similar conversations with landlords back then when I started to grow my group. And they were saying that they were going to do the same and they wouldn't want to wait and they're going to start evicting unlawfully. About four of those people got prosecuted and fined £10,000 and very nearly ended up with criminal convictions for unlawful eviction. So I'm just going to say that to everybody that's watching and listening. You know, if you've got an appetite for that, then that's just entirely up to you. But you've got to be able to sleep at night. I've had bad tenants. We've got to go through, you know, most people have got a price, I think, Julie, haven't they? And most people will be bought out. If they're going to surrender, do it properly. Give them some money. I know it's a little bit of a backward step, but at least then you can start moving forwards. It's tough, isn't it, out there right now? It is, absolutely. But it, it is tough for everybody. And it's a situation, like I say, we haven't been through before. So everybody is in a situation where they don't know necessarily where their, their next income's coming from. You've got landlords who's maybe just the one property. If mm. the rent's not coming in, then... Tenants need to understand that if there's then a maintenance problem, how realistically is that landlord going to be able to maintain the property if you're not actually giving them an income to be able to do that for you? So there is such a knock-on effect with regards to not paying your rent. It's all fine, well and good saying, you know, can't pay, won't pay. There's a very, very few tenants out there that will be in a situation where they have no income whatsoever. Very, yeah, very yeah, few. The whole can't pay, won't pay. I mean, I talk about this every day, don't I? I love going off on rants. I feel so passionate about this stuff at the moment, though. So they are going to fall in one of the following categories, aren't they? So they're either working as normal, so they should pay their rent. They're either furloughed, so at least they should be paying 80% of their rent, maybe, you know, but you should, should get something. They're on universal credit, so they should be paying their 
their allowance for the area that they live in at, at least and maybe topping up as well if they can or they're on housing benefit so nothing's changed anyway so there is no real reason that I can see that they should not be paying their rent. Now, I know that there are self-employed people out there, but that, that have fallen, you know, they've not been able to get the C-bill loans and not been able to get the bounce back loans, but they should then be able to claim universal credit. So they're back in that, that element. So I don't think at the moment, unless I've missed anything, there is a good solid reason for tenants not to pay their rent. No, absolutely. And for all the, the, the reasons you've just mentioned, there, like I say, there's very, very few people in a position where they don't have any income at all. So to say that you can't pay, I don't necessarily believe that argument. I think it's a case of won't pay out of principle, but unfortunately I don't think there's many tenants that actually understand what that principle is. Absolutely. My son loves to watch. My son's on tonight, by the way. I'm going to give him a shout out in a minute. So Ben's just joined us from YouTube. So hi, Ben. I'm not ignoring you and I'll be home soon. Don't worry. Um, ben loves to watch Can't Pay, Take It Away or something. He loves that on the television. He just loves all that drama. So Ricky is saying that how do you deal with tenants that won't pay, can't pay, especially when they fail to communicate? I mean, I think, again, that goes back to the whole mediation thing. Sometimes just getting somebody new into the situation that is independent and unbiased to both sides to actually open that dialogue is really important because sometimes tenants are, I would say in this situation, probably just scared, maybe a little bit embarrassed. They don't want to open that communication with the landlord because they're scared of what's going to happen. If they pick up the phone, is the landlord going to scream down the phone at them? Are they going to get abuse? They just don't know. They're frightened. I'm not sticking up for tenants per se, but we have to understand why the communication may have broken down. And I just think in that case, do everything that you possibly can in as nice a way as possible, but understand you have to keep it professional. It has to be business. None of these little text messages backwards and forwards with kisses on the end, which I've seen. I'm not happy with that at all. You know, none of this bought telling people your sob story and listening to their sob story listen to the facts of their problem and then understand how you can work with them to rectify it but do everything as professionally as you can because again like i said at the beginning it's about us landlords being grown-ups we've got to be the grown-ups in this situation and teach the tenants what we expect from them set the level of expectation and make them understand that eviction may not be what we're looking at but we all need to move forward keep a roof over their head and we can't do that without the rent coming in it's a great answer so ricky hope that answered your question uh lee saying great content as always oh thank you lee have to go sorry but see you in the morning and thank you for the tips julie uh folks if you've got any questions now for julie got about five minutes before we're going to wind it up so fire them across now anything about property tenancies and the law well not just the law or not the law in general but property law would be quite good um ricky communication is the key but i have heard stories where tenants have completely ignored the landlord so in that situation julie where the tenant is completely uh, refusing to answer any communications what are you left with um I would look, first of all, at going to the local council. Now, I know landlords don't necessarily like the local council very much, but they do have a private sector housing team. And those private sector housing teams' job, nine times out of ten, is to keep a tenant in a property. Now, they're going to be the ones that are going to help you engage with that tenant, because if you turn around and say, if they're not engaging with me, I'm going to have to serve notice, and then, unfortunately, Mr. Council, the council will want to be on your side helping you communicate with that tenant. 
Yeah, very much so. And they do because I've been in this situation the first week in lockdown and we had a really poor tenant and he actually gave notice. And, you know, like everything, I keep everything in writing. Obviously, if a tenant gives notice, we keep it in writing just to make sure. And um, he didn't go. So I, well, I didn't phone him, but one of my team phoned him and said, what's happening? So I'm going at the weekend. Don't worry, I'm going at the weekend. So we documented it and we put it on our system, Go Tenant. And came the weekend, we had a phone call on the Friday night from the housing officer and they were really, actually, they were quite curt. What do you think you're doing, kicking out your tenants without notice? Not only can you not do this, but you can't do it now because of coronavirus anyway. I'm like, whoa, 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 the guy's given notice. He's leaving on his own accord. Oh, oh, well, he didn't tell me that. Well, he's got nowhere to go. So I've advised him to stay put. And he was caught He was caught in the property with a knife. He was threatening other tenants with a knife. And the housing officer now has just told him to go back into the house. I'm like, great, thank you. But then we actually got onto a level playing field and started to talk with each other. And she actually helped us get him somewhere to, to, to live. Now, normally, in my experience, it would be the last resort. And the housing officers wouldn't normally get involved until they are homeless because then at that point, then they become an emergency. But she actually worked really proactively to help him find somewhere to help him move. And he did. So that was great. So great advice again. Don't be scared of these people. You know, everybody wants an easy life, right? And if we can do that lawfully and we can work together, then that's absolutely fantastic. Um, Sarah, councils have powers. Landlords don't. Well, I guess councils have powers. If Well, they do have powers. Sometimes they perhaps abuse them. Sometimes they don't really know the law themselves. So, you know, you know, my advice to everybody is just get clued up on the law, on the Housing Act. Get clued up on the Housing Act. Go on an NRLA program and get clued up on tenancy and lettings because the more you know, the more you can actually push back. We don't want to upset people, do we? We don't want to do that. But absolutely. Um Interrupted. Sarah's saying the broadcast is interrupted. Are we still here? Yeah, we're still here. I think I'm still here. I'm still here too. We still. I think we just lost quite a few people there. But no, we're still here, Oops. folks. We are still here. Um, Lorraine, it's a family affair tonight. My wife's on here. So Lorraine said that UK bookings are up fifty percent this month compared to last year on staycations. Staycations are helping the UK economy, as Ricky's saying. And Ricky again saying the biggest blow is definitely Section 24. Oh, we haven't discussed that tonight. Paying tax on borrowed money that belongs to the bank. It's just, yeah, actually, we didn't mention that tonight because that's been here for what? Well, three years. I mean, it started three years ago and it's in full force now. Yeah, you've got to do your tax planning, folks. You've got to make sure your company structure's done in the right way and you've got to speak to an, an accountant. It's the best thing I can uh, I can do with that. Ricky, again, you're very prolific tonight, Ricky. I believe in licensing legislation as it helps to increase property and living standards and get rig rid of the rogues. Yes, I agree as well. Absolutely. Um, oh, we're back. So, we, yeah, we had a little bit of a glitch there for some reason. Sorry, Manny. Oh. Um, don't know what happened there. It was all good from this side. Folks. Um, we're nearly 45 minutes in. So that was um, a great chat to, tonight, Julie. As I say, it's just, you know, it's just like shooting the breeze and having a bit of a rant. Sometimes you've got to let that steam out and you've got to fight for what you believe in. Let's just finally talk about our, our cousins in Wales. What do you make of this new six-month eviction process? 
I think it's quite sweet, really, that the government have given it a go. But from the practical side of things, at the end of the day, this new six month notice is only going to be in place until the end of September. So really, anyone that wants to serve notice now, having to serve six months, just wait until the end of September and serve a two months notice. It's going to be a lot quicker. Yeah. You see, but they don't tell you that. And not everybody understands the legislation. So I bet you loads of people now have gone in with six months. Biggest issue now is the court backlog, isn't it? Um, I can't remember. I think you know the stats. How many backlogs have we got at the moment in court in the UK? Uh, I, I really don't know now, unfortunately. But I, I know we were looking at some sort of fact that it was in the thousands. It was in the, the hundreds of thousands, I think. Really? So. Crazy, isn't it? I mean, when yeah. we do start the the process again, very soon as well, it's coming up, isn't it? Um, yeah. you know, it's nice to see the system moving, but I think that you know the powers that be have stated that most people will be looking up towards a year to get their possession hearings actually dealt with if they've served the notification to the courts and to the tenants to say that they are still proceeding because a load of people are going to forget to do that as well. Yeah, I mean, this is something about this this new piece of legislation that they've they've sort of almost sneaked in under the radar, really. Um, landlords will now have to serve what's called a reactivation notice. Interestingly, this doesn't come in prescribed form, so you can literally handwrite it, but you have to deliver it to the tenant and you have to deliver it to the court, and it must contain specific information. So it must tell the court exactly what you want to happen. So whether you want the case to be heard, listed, relisted, or referred to a judge. But interestingly, in the legislation, it does say that a tenant can also serve a reactivation notice. So if a tenant wants something to happen a little bit quicker and maybe the landlord is dragging his heels, the tenant can actually reactivate um, a notice period as well. All right. OK, cool. Awesome. Um, Ricky saying the vocals are frozen again. Are we having trouble tonight? Everything looks good from my side. Um Rick, your video is out of sync with your audio. You're on loop visually. Okay, we're having a few audio problems by the look of it. Don't know why. Um, we're all good on this side. I can see Julie and hear her quite well as well. So we can just chill out and just talk amongst ourselves, Julie. And we can talk about motorbikes again now. <laughs> we can go back to talking about motorbikes, etc. Um, a couple of people are saying that it's on loop. I don't know if you can still hear us, folks. So that's probably a great uh, opportunity to uh, to wind it up then, Julie. So I want to say thank you so much for joining us tonight. And don't forget, folks, if you are interested in joining Julie at her network meeting, the link is back here, www hspn.uk check it out julie is one of the uh, the people that have been around for for longer than most and you won't get any fluff at julie's meeting it's just pure content which is what we need a little bit more of in the networking scene as far as i can see so um apparently we're still on loop julie everyone is telling us now that it's all gone wrong so julie oh, wow. thank you so much for joining us tonight and i'll see you probably tomorrow morning on the news feed Thanks very much, Rick, and I'll see you in the morning. Take care. Awesome. Thank you. Take care.